what can we do to help elevate what's around us? So being in Franklinton, we wanted to be part of this community and help build it up. And everyone, when we started here and why we loved the idea of Franklinton, it's right next to downtown. And for us being a manufacturer, the logistics of like 315 being there, we can get around. But seeing what we could do to have an impact on, on the neighborhood, realize that we're on the right path. All right, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Adam Benner. Adam is Land Grant Brewing's president and founder, as well as officer for the Ohio Craft Brewing Association in the role of treasurer. Upon his graduating from Ohio State University, Adam spent a little time in Madison, Wisconsin, and then continued to work in corporate America in Chicago. This is where Adam started his love for home brewing process that was an outlet for both his creative and technical sides. After years of brewing and branding beer as an after-hours hobby, Adam and his former Ohio State roommate launched Land Grant Brewing Company in Franklinton in downtown Columbus in 2014. And uh, yeah, it's just been a joy to get to know Adam and to work with him and to now have the Gravity Experience Park with Adam and uh, hopefully we'll be doing a lot more together in this neighborhood we both are working in and love. Enjoy. All right. All right. Well, we are here on the Gravity Podcast with uh, Adam Benner. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you here and uh, get to spend some time with you and learn a little bit more about your story, share it with our audience. We've been collaborating now over at the Gravity Experience Park, which has been uh, a lot of fun. And it's been great. Yeah, seeing that come together and really uh, wouldn't have come together if it weren't for you guys. Uh, certainly not in the way that I think is in the spirit of this neighborhood. So, yeah, that's uh, exciting. No, I appreciate it. I mean, and, and likewise, I don't think we would have been able to pull off some of the stuff that we did without, you know, your guys' partnership. So it's been it's been a learning experience. I mean, we've done winter yeah. stuff before, but uh, the <laughs> rink is four times the size. But yeah. we were just saying earlier, I don't, you know, the, the response has been amazing. Yeah. Know, how, how much the entire uh, community has really gra- gravitated to it. Look at that. Yeah. Look yeah. At that. I'm brand. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about, you know, land grant and neighborhood and what you're doing, you know, as we get there. But, you know, we, we've built all these buildings. We've been, trying to push everything forward for a while now. And I think the experience park is the thing that's being most talked about more than anything else we've ever done. So, um, well, if it gets more eyes and more, uh, more people down to then, then see what else is going on. I think then that's gotta be a success, right? Well, that that's, you know, really a big part of what we're trying to do. And I think it's a big part of what you guys do too, right? You're not just selling beer, right? You're trying to create an experience, a community. And so, you know, that park in particular, for us was like, we don't need to put another building up. We want people over here enjoying the community, being a part of the neighborhood, people that maybe aren't over here yet that now hear about it, see you know something and it intrigues them. They, they now know about Franklinton. They know about gravity. They know about land grant. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the, we're really going to see that spring, summer yeah. right now with a lot of it's quicker hits, but it's the nice thing is now those people where there are people aware something's there now. Yeah. So it's got got folks down and piqued their interest. So when we go back to them and say, hey, we're doing some other fun things, they're going to come down and 
that'll allow them to even explore what's around even more. So yeah. I think we haven't even tapped in what, what the potential of the park is. Yeah. And with the uh, pickleball craze that ought to automatically get people over there. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. I'm excited to see how it rotates seasonally. And I know we're getting some food trucks there, have some live music this summer and uh, yeah, it's really great. Oh yeah, definitely. Cool. So let's talk about you. Let's start at the beginning. I want to hear a little bit more about, you know, kind of your early upbringing, family dynamics, et cetera. All right. So all way back. Yeah. The mid eighties. Okay. Little uh, ginger boy was born in uh, Hinkley, Ohio. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so home of the buzzards. All right. So Hinkley is, oh, where it's probably 25 minutes south of Cleveland, close to Richfield where the Cleveland Cavaliers used to play, mm-hmm. kind of between Cleveland and Akron. Mm-hmm. So grew up there and uh, an older sister. Uh, both my parents, my dad's an optometrist. So mm-hmm. uh, I was the only only kid that had glasses, only family member that had glasses in our, our family. So mm-hmm. very close family. My rather small kind of immediate family on uh, much closer with my family on my mom's side. They kind of all over Cleveland area. Grandparents lived in North Carolina, but yeah, it was a pretty typical Midwestern up, upbringing. Played a lot of sports growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't really, I think I tried playing the piano and the drum at one point. I'm not musically inclined at all, but mm-hmm. started playing golf as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandparents were really into golf. So that's kind of been part of my journey uh, mm-hmm. on and off, uh, depending on where I'm living and I'm starting a new business right. <laughs> or not. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So lived in, lived in the Cleveland area for basically my whole childhood and then came down to Ohio state actually started at Miami of Ohio. Okay. Oxford wasn't my scene. Yeah. My sister was at, at Miami uh-huh. and, uh, she loved it for me. It's a great place to visit, but yeah. it was almost too small of a school for, um, what I experienced both my, both my parents went to Ohio state. So we would, I. Very familiar. We'd come down every fall, summertime, had a good group of friends at Ohio State. And mm-hmm. one of them, one of our old, one of my roommates, Walt Keys, uh, who ended up co-founding the brewery with me. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Just um, appreciate you kind of setting the table there. And it sounds like, you know, pretty kind of straightforward Midwestern experience. Played your sports. You were went to Hilton Head every year. Okay, as as, as most people in Ohio do uh-huh, <laughs> for vacation. Right. Yeah, Northeast Ohio in the winter, and uh, yeah, you were you were probably saddled with being a Cleveland sports fan. Unfortunately, yep, yeah. me too. Me too. I spent ten years in Akron and got that blessing or curse, curse mostly. And academically, just sort of middle of the road, anything going on, you know, uh, in childhood? So I'm, uh, it's funny, it, it probably <laughs> wasn't until college that I was uh, officially diagnosed with uh, attention ADHD. And so, and, and then I always get from my mom, she's like, yeah, I mean, all the teacher would say, like, you don't pay attention in mm-hmm. class. But uh, I was, a, I would say I was a very above average student that didn't try that much and mm-hmm. like testing. I'm, I'm a very good test taker. So I, and kind of problem solver. So it probably wasn't until college. I was really challenged when it came to kind of academics mm-hmm. and, you know, went to, went to that, uh, that Catholic guilt, went to Catholic school, my, my upbringing. So it was, a uh, it was good, but I think, yeah, I, I'd say I was a good student, but 
Could I have been a little better? Probably. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, I'm just kind of yeah. curious because, you know, obviously you've had so much success, you know, that I always am kind of curious about, you know, what people's backgrounds are. And a lot of times you can be a tremendous entrepreneur and a horrible student, you yeah. know, yeah. and sometimes it's the other way around. So that's why I ask. Um, I, I was voted most likely to succeed in my high school class, which was interesting because yeah. I wasn't the any anywhere near the valid Victoria. And I just, I, I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh-huh. Uh, it's always been kind of about, and while I'm an analytical person and like science driven, I'm also always have been very creative. So yeah, we just did a bunch of fun stuff in high school that pe- maybe people saw that. I don't well, know. yeah. Tell me about that. What were some of those early creative, you know, cause when I think about land grant, I think about it as a very creative business. I mean, I, I don't even think about it as a business. I mean, it obviously is, right? But but it has such a a vibe, such a culture, right? I mean, the merch, it's one of these things that people really identify with, right? So that that has to be something that's very curated. It's very creative, right? And it's like got a creative energy even. So tell me about this creative side that you started to explore and and kind of the area of entrepreneurship, you know, specifically. So what you touched on is, uh, you know, eventually when I get there to the start brewing as a hobby and deciding to open a brewery, what really attracted to me was a, the entrepreneurship side, but there is this science and creativity side with beer. You know, every time that we're coming out with a new beer, it's like starting a new company. Almost. You got to tell the story. You got to think about what it's out there, but probably started when, it's probably mid high school or so we got, uh, just a camcorder, like a, when digital cameras, uh, video cameras started coming out. So mm-hmm. my buddies and I, we would just, you know, film goofy stuff, but then eventually it turned into in my basement, I bought some blue screen, like blue fabric from Joanne fabrics. Mm-hmm. And we used to do like actual, like blue screen things. And mm-hmm. we did in our, we had two class projects that One, we didn't, we just kind of decided that it would be cool to do and ended up getting a ton of extra extra credit from a U.S. history class. We, (laughs) there is a metro park in near near where I grew up called Hinkley Lake. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a decent size, like dammed up lake. And we rented rowboats and decided we were going to reenact the storming of the beaches of Normandy. And so (laughs) just a bunch of dumb high schoolers, like we had... Some of us were U.S. soldiers, and then we had the German soldiers <laughs> that were hiding in the trees, like shooting fake guns and throwing rocks so it looked like bullets hitting the water. And we jump out of the boat and uh-huh. trudge into the beaches and got fake blood. And and then I sounds like a hell of a production. Oh, well, then I pulled it into I pulled it into like I think it was Vegas video at the time mm. and cutting up with Saving Private Ryan sound effects and all this stuff and. We showed wow. it at our class. It wasn't even a project. We uh-huh. just, I just, our U.S. history teacher was the golf coach too, so he liked me, and uh, that's kind of what started it. And then we did. You had to do a project for Macbeth, and what's funny, I wasn't even in this class, but my friends asked if I would help with it. I was in a different class, and we did Macbeth Act Four, and we did it in my basement in front of the blue screen, and we did it as if, if we retold it as if it was like a nineteen. 19- 30s gangster movie mm. um and so uh my best friend from high school uh still um he's still in cleveland we go on golf trips he mm-hmm. he was Macbeth, 
but and he and his parents are from Italy, so he had this you know gangster Italian accent, and mm-hmm. that's actually still on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> we pull it up every now and again when we're we're together. I so, bet. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so that's kind of what yeah. that's what started it. Uh-huh. Uh, I had this idea that maybe I'd, I'd go to film school, mm-hmm. uh, like, but it, I wasn't really that into it. And then mm-hmm. as uh, life happens, and decided to study finance instead mm. at Ohio State. So. And, and, and and what was behind that? Why finance with, with all the creative? I mean, it's, it's pretty creative, right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. obviously, you guys, you know, sound like you're, you know, up to having some fun and, you know, doing some creative shit. And yet you take the finance path. Is that like strategic or are you thinking kind of, this is now what I need to grow up and do something, you know, real, get a real job? Kind of, kind of both. Mm-hmm. I'd say if, I didn't, looking back this, like I realized this a few years ago, I didn't know any engineers. I didn't know what an engineer did. I had mm-hmm. my, my aunt's ex-husband was an engineer. Mm-hmm. And so growing up that term and what, like, that's probably the path I would have gone down is some mm-hmm. sort of engineering. I'm a tinkerer. Mm-hmm. Like I was a Lego kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took apart my first Xbox and broke it, like just trying to figure out the insides of it. And mm-hmm. so there's that science side to it, but I've always been very, pretty good with numbers and mm-hmm. math, math was always a strong subject. And so mm-hmm. kind of knowing I wanted to go into the business world, that was probably I, I, new marketing. I felt finance gives you enough of a foundation that you're not, you, you have the number side, you understand the accounting, but there's, it's not as rigid as accounting. So there is some creativity and Mm-hmm. what you can do and figuring things out. It's a lot of problem solving, I feel like, in in, mm-hmm. in finance. And so like ec- economics was also one of my favorite, the courses that I took, kind of that macro and micro theory of just mm-hmm. how the economy works. Mm-hmm. As, as that really started getting me interested into why finance. But kind of going back to it, like my dad being an optometrist at his own practice, so he worked for himself. My grandfather his parents were from Ukraine. He had an interesting story. He basically grew up on in Tremont area, the immigrant town in downtown Cleveland. Parents didn't speak English, kind of made, made himself. He went, he was a six foot tall, blonde hair, blue eye, parents from Ukraine. So he spoke, he could speak Polish. He could speak German. He spoke a lot of the Slavic languages. So he was actually a spy in World War, World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, well, his group was the the counterintelligence corps was kind of the precursor to what kind of turned into the CIA. And so he went around, uh, he was mainly in Austria and his group, they didn't wear any badges or anything like that. And so he, it's, it's a, there's a, something that came out recently on the group that he was in, they nicknamed the Richie boys, but he was his, his group, they were the first people into a lot of the concentration camps in Austria. Mm-hmm. And so very interesting story. Went to Ohio State, then out to the war, and then came back and worked his way through. Uh, his career was mainly in radio and ended up running the largest radio station. He was the GM at, I forget what the name it was, but in Cleveland, they were the news. They had the Browns, Buckeyes, they had all of that. Mm-hmm. And then from there, bought his own radio station in North Carolina and ran that. He had a truck stop in Pennsylvania. So he was kind of a serial entrepreneur. And so Growing up, knowing that that's something you could do, that you don't have to necessarily, I w- you know, going back, I wasn't surrounded by engineers, but I was surrounded by entrepreneurs. I was mm-hmm. surrounded by folks that kind of went off and did their own thing. And so that was always in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. I had 
Ohio State had just started an entrepreneurship minor while I was in college. So I, I took that uh, in high school, even going back to creative. In high school, my good friend Brian and I had our own web design company. So mm-hmm. I didn't cut gra- mow lawns. I yeah. made websites for people. And, mm-hmm. and what, what years were you uh, doing that in college? So yeah. I uh, graduated high school in 2002. So uh-huh. it was early 2000s. Yep. And then graduated from Ohio State in 2006. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, it's funny. I asked that because I think people kind of take for granted that entrepreneurship is just like a, you know, an option to study now. I mean, when I was in school, there wasn't even a real estate major, you know, so a lot of, I think the universities have been a little late to it, but, you know, really figured out that these are things people really want to study and it's a much better option, right? I mean, not everybody wants to go into finance, right? Not everybody mm-hmm. wants to work at a bank or on Wall Street. But but you might want to understand the economics. You might want to understand, you know, the other aspects of of being an entrepreneur. And and it can be more than just a minor, you know. Exactly. And I think what it really does it gives some of the framework of there's just so many unknowns when you're off on your own and starting. If you if you also haven't worked for a small business before like, yeah. that's kind of been, that was my journey of going from corporate America and what it does take that you're, you're not really anticipating that. And so some people are made out for it and mm-hmm. they understand that the different levels of stress and it's mostly on you as opposed to having a huge team around you and being able to sometimes hide within an organization that is much larger, mm-hmm. which I, saw in my journey in corporate America mm-hmm. too. So, mm. uh, so tell me about that journey. I mean, you mentioned you, you met your business partner in college, but tell me about kind of the, what happens before you get to starting the business. Yeah. You go into corporate America so straight my, out of, straight out of school, straight out of school. Yeah. So I, um, my first job, I, it was probably the best first job that you could kind of be just thrown in the fire. So if you're familiar with my chart, like mm-hmm. at the hospital, yeah, so yeah. Epic, Epic Systems, I was, that was my first job out of college. I was implementing their software. So they came to Ohio State, recruited, they're in Madison, Wisconsin. Great job offer for a kid fresh out of college. Madison seemed like a, they flew me out to visit for an interview. It seemed like a fun town. It's a college town, Midwest. And what they were doing, they were just building this kind of empire at the time. So when I, when I started there in the summer of 2006, they had, I think they, they had just done Kaiser Permanente in California and Hawaii. And so they were essentially taking the, their, their strategy versus, uh, like electronic medical or medical records, health records, really that was new in the Mm -hmm. early 2000s. And so you had all these different options out there, smaller ones that a single hospital might use, but their strategy was they went after entire hospital systems. And I think when I was there, it was like one in four people, their charts were on, were on Epic. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, I mean, it was started by a single, uh, it was, I forget her last name, Judy, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was her thesis project Hmm. at the university of Madison. She, I think she was like a data scientist type, um, Mm -hmm. or math major and figured out that like with databases, you actually could take paper charts and convert them into, and have that information follow you through your journey in the hospital system. And Mm -hmm. 
And so their strategy, it was interesting. So always have dabbled in software, so technology, but their strategy was they went after folks that were pretty smart, had good grades, but it, they didn't go after anyone necessarily, unless you were actually a so, like a like a coder there, you didn't have to have a business major, you didn't have to have a science degree, and they figured they could train you be a project manager to help implement their software. They wanted kind of dynamic people. It was, it was very interesting. I, we, my start class, I think there was a hundred kids that started. I started in July. There was a hundred people that started in June. There was a hundred people that started in August. So a lot like what happens at the large uh, accounting firms, except our first three months were in Madison, Wisconsin, getting paid a decent amount of money and it's training. So mm -hmm. we just were reliving about three months of our <laughs> of extended college and mm -hmm. actually getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so met some really, really great people. And then they just drop you in the fire mm -hmm. and they're like, all right, you're going to go out where you're assigned a, a discipline. Um, mine was the ambulatory. So outpatient clinics software, and you learn the software inside it out and you're on a team and you're basically, your role is to then go in win the staff over and train them. Mm. They've already won the the contract with the mm -hmm. hospital system. My first ever presentation, so I'd been there. So we're on the client and they're like, all right, we're going to do a demo of the software for the entire hospital system. This was Mercy Hospital down in St. Louis. They're in St. Louis, Northwest Arkansas. So very big, um, like Walmart. And if you go to St. Louis, you'll see Mercy Hospitals all over the place. And so we're in this hotel ballroom all the c-suite of the the hospital system there you know all the doctors from the er everything just to see this new software they're going and so you know my part is to demo you know this is how you check in a patient and, you know doing a standard you know well visit that mm -hmm. you would have and the projector goes off oh shoot and so <laughs> i have to describe a software <laughs> Like, this is what you'd be expecting and talk through it. And so yeah. it's always funny. I always, any other job interview I'd have after stuff like that happened all the time. And it's like, you just get dropped in. I was a 22 year old kid and you're, I should not have been meeting with the, you know, head of ambulatory for mercy hospitals, but they that gave us the training and the confidence to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's a company that burns people out very quickly. I, mm -hmm. I lasted a year, but mainly I met, I met a girl. And, uh, <laughs> in Chicago and at the time they had been burnt, everyone had to live in Madison, even mm -hmm. though we were, you were only in the office as my role one day a week, you traveled, you know, we, I was in St. Louis four mm -hmm. days a week or Arkansas, uh, depending on your client. I mean, so, some people got the Hawaii clients and they're there for two weeks mm -hmm. and then they started to expand into Europe. So you're barely actually needing to be in Wisconsin, but they found when people weren't at the home office and coming back and this is way before remote work, that those folks ended up leaving the company more than folks that were within there. And they built this beautiful campus outside of Madison and Verona, Wisconsin, that they wanted to utilize. And mm -hmm. so I spent a lot of weekends driving back and forth between Madison and Chicago, and eventually it was, it was too much. And so, mm -hmm. and so we started, we started dating while I was there. And so mm -hmm. my time in Madison was short, but most of the, so I said, we started with a hundred people in our class. There's probably 300 people that started. If you stayed five years at Epic, you got a month paid sabbatical to anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and they would fully all expenses paid. I knew two people that mm. made it all five years. Wow. That just, and my, my good buddy, 
Ari, who was from Vermont, he ended up, he was running full implementations on big hospital systems and he left shortly. At, a lot of people leave after their five-year sabbatical. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, it's a great company. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was uh, probably the best experience I could get for a first job out yeah. of college. And then from there, uh, moved down to Chicago and I started working at Walgreens corporate. And, okay. and then, so now I'm more in my finance uh, as a data analyst. Mm -hmm. So I was in there. Uh, let's see here. They're prescription benefits wing. So if you're, let's say coffin development, you come in and you have, Hey, we have 300 employees, you know, you can go to Walgreens and might be able to negotiate. Now, granted, we, I, I, my big project, I remember we were working on Toyota. So they go to the Toyota factories around the country and they go, we have, you know, hundred thousand workers or 10,000 workers. Here's all their, here's the bucket of prescriptions that they've had. We analyze that data to try to get to what kind of rates can they negotiate on their, so they're negotiating outside of the actual like insurance companies. So working directly with Walgreens to provide, you know, $5 generics or what $10 brands. And so my job was to analyze those contracts to make sure that Walgreens is going to be profitable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that was kind of my, when I started at Walgreens, they were basically opening, you know, a store every 15 minutes. They're opening all these stores. They're just super mm -hmm. successful. And then within two weeks, probably not because of me, but their stock went from $50 a share to 35. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time in their history that they actually had something go wrong for them economically. And they went through their first ever riff in mm. the entire company history. So half of my team was laid off mm. a couple of years later another half of the team was laid off. So mm -hmm. they, they, they went from this riding high and then didn't know what to do. They didn't. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of my first experience that I kind of, kind of built how I've approached our business. But within that they're doing these hundred million multi, multi-million dollar contracts with these employers and, and also other with insurance companies and other providers. And every, and this is in 2008, 2009, all of those contracts were on paper mm. and then filed away. And there was, they had two, two uh, administrative assistants that their job was just for the salespeople or the analysts to pull, go find the contract that's been agreed upon, transcribe it or like the, the numbers and send it to us. So then we could, we can model it out. And I'm like, this is the most inefficient thing that I've ever seen. So me being ADD decided, okay, I can probably build like a, just a, like an access database, a database that can, they can track these things and track the rates because sometimes we couldn't tell like where they had a 5%, you know, reading someone's chicken scratch. So mm -hmm. let's make sure we're transcribing this. And I built this database, which ended up, they ran the entire department for three or four years. And mm. uh, after a while, uh, so I was living downtown Chicago and you're doing the reverse commute up to Deerfield on a good day. It's like 35 30, 40 minutes, there's a train, but if you don't time it right, cause you got to take a bus from the train station, that could take like an hour and a half. It just wears on you, yeah. that commute. I'm curious why you're doing all this. I mean, you're you're in like a very different world than the one you landed in. Yeah. So is like the beer thing, like, you know, finding, are you, are you like on the side? Are you thinking about it? When does that come into the picture? Right now. Okay, <laughs> so all right. It's yeah. a great segue. So when I moved to Madison, so in, in college, you know, 
drank Natty Light. I think when we <laughs> we would splurge, we would get a 30, 30 rack of Bush Light. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah. I had a roommate that drank Sierra Nevada, and we're like, oh, man, that's so bitter. How do you do that? Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in Madison, great beer town, that's probably when I started getting a lot more. There was a my friend, Ari, who I mentioned, his apartment was above a brew pub mm-hmm. uh, called the Great Dane. So really started exploring, oh, beer can be different. And where we lived in Chicago, there's a really great brew pub called Peace. They won multiple awards for best small brewer of the year, best small brewer in the country, awards for their beers, and just made fantastic beer. And on my journey, so at my lunch breaks in, in Deerfield, I would just drive. Sometimes I'd be like, all right, you know, I don't want to sit in this cubicle for the next hour mm-hmm. or just go to the cafeteria in the building. And so I would drive up and I had a friend in Seattle. He's like, Hey, I just started homebrewing. And I'm like, that's really cool. Hey, there's a homebrew shop like 10 minutes from, from the office. And mm-hmm. so went in there and there was a guy who was a professional brewer. He was running it, went to brewing school in Vermont and really just kind of chewed his ear off. And it seemed like a great hobby to get into. So mm-hmm. brewed my first batch of beer the week we got my wife and I got back. We, we got married in Colorado and got back and my friend and I, we brewed a fat tire from New Belgium, Kelowna, mm. Amber Ale. And so, and so she's, she, we always say she's, we've been together the entire journey. And, and so, uh, as with any hobby, whether you're podcasting or I got into photography for a while, like, you, you know, you just, there's one little tool that makes it a little easier. Mm-hmm. So we went from making it on our stove to, we bought the setup that we could, we, we lived in a coach house in Chicago. So it's the house behind the mm-hmm. like main house. So we actually had a courtyard between and storage underneath, which is kind of rare if you're living in, in the bigger city. And so we, we had all this equipment and I just kept acquiring more equipment. Mm-hmm. And during this time, there's all these breweries opening up around Chicago and they had the annual craft brewers conference in Chicago. And so a friend and I were at the time that I brewed with, we went out to the bars where they'd have the events and meet the different brewers and just started really getting really into this kind of hobby. And this is, so this is 2009, 2010. So this is really the start of this new American craft beer boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think when I moved to Chicago, there was maybe seven or eight breweries in Chicagoland proper. And uh, I think it was like two years ago, Chicago passed Portland and Denver to have the most breweries in any city. Mm. It was like I don't know, 300 breweries. So there was a brewery called Half Acre who uh, were big fans of that loved what they were doing. They were the, one of the first craft breweries in the Midwest to actually start canning their beers. And so just seeing all this energy around beer and, and that it's not, wasn't just beer. It was kind of, as you mentioned earlier, it was about the different communities around it. Mm-hmm. And my in-laws are from town in Northwest Indiana called Munster. And there's a brewery called three Floyds there that throws this big party every spring called dark Lord day, where it's just like tailgating for a football game. But it's just beer people. Mm-hmm. So really kind of seeing this, this, this energy that I had never really seen before. And that's when I was working at, um, a company, we were setting up nursing schools all over the country and was getting really burnt out at that point. Cause that, back in my head, it's always, I gotta, I'm going to do something on my own. Eventually I just got to figure out what it is. Yeah. And so seeing all these breweries opening up, you know, my hobby going back to so my hobby of brewing beer, a lot of home brewers do this. They're like, okay, we're going to name our brewery. We're going to name our beers. And then we, you, you label, you bottle, you, mm-hmm. you can, you know, drink beer and then peel the labels off, put them in the dishwasher and then you bottle them and then you label them yourself. Mm-hmm. And so luckily for me, my, my old roommate at Ohio state 
is a fantastic graphic designer. So mm-hmm. Walt was in New York at the time and I'm, I would, we'd say, Hey, we're making a beer, we're making a beer called stiff arm. Will you make a label for it? And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, we go to the beer store, you see all these new breweries opening up and we're like, you know what? Our beer, our labels actually look better than these. And yeah. the beer's starting to taste like maybe this is something we should do. And yeah. <laughs> so we started exploring and I'm like, this, like I said earlier, it ticks all the boxes. It, it's something that I think there's the momentum. There's definitely the need for it. Again, there was eight breweries in Chicago at the time. And so our original plan was we we're going to open this brewery in Chicago. My, my good friend, Colin, who I brewed with. And then we were mentioned on some blog posts. Cause like we kind of sat out there and started talking to different people. And there was like 35 or 40 other breweries that were in planning in Chicago at this mm-hmm. time. And we're like, mm-hmm. that's a lot. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we this isn't the right place for us, but a lot of the theme of our homebrew beers and kind of the, the name of our, our, our homebrew brewery that was going to be the name of the brewery was, was Oval Brewing Company. So it was our nod to the central part of Ohio State's campus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We didn't want to call it like Buckeye Beer or something right, like that. But right. so nod to our alma mater and original logo Walt designed, which is still featured in some of the Langrant stuff is, is if you look at like a satellite view of the oval mm-hmm. of all the crisscrossing paths, mm-hmm. um, so it was a nice generic name. It could, could have fit in Chicago, but some of the branding, a lot of it had this kind of collegiate feel to it. So we would always come back to visit friends that were still, that stayed in Columbus after school. And it was about probably 2011 that we started seeing kind of this groundswell that we saw in Chicago of beer specific bars opening up. So Bodega in the short North, they kind of switched and added additional they they kept adding taps you saw bars going from having six taps of beer that they had maybe miller light coors light bud light an import Mm -hmm. guinness to actually carrying sierra nevada and carrying carrying more sam adams and 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 expanding or going from six taps to to 15 taps and i think woodlands was one in grandview that was one of the first and so that that's what I witnessed kind of firsthand happening in Chicago and then started seeing it here and then started hearing rumblings of different breweries that were in planning. So this goes back. It was four string was the first that ended up opening. And while we're like Columbus is the spot, like we mm-hmm. both loved our time here. Walt grew up outside of Cincinnati. He was not liking his life in, in uh, he was in book publishing mm-hmm. in New York and we're like, I think Columbus is, is, is where we should do this. And we kind of set out on that. And so my wife, Lauren, who now also works at the brewery, she, she knew, like she saw, like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to like, you know, she knew that I wasn't going to be good climbing the corporate ladder that eventually we'd go and start something. So there was a brewery in Chicago called Pipeworks. They're still around. They make great beer. They did this thing that I'd never heard it before. It was called Kickstarter. And they used that to raise money to mm-hmm. start their brewery. And so they their plan, they had someone that matched their Kickstarter. I think they raised thirty thousand. They had someone invest thirty thousand. They started their brewery with sixty thousand dollars. And so we knew that was gonna be a little different for us, but we're like, hey, let's do thirty thousand. So I had this agreement with Lauren. I go, we're gonna try this. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna say we're gonna open in Columbus, Ohio. And, but we're going to be a production brewery because mm-hmm. if we're going to move to Columbus from Chicago and quit our jobs, like we got to mm-hmm. make enough beer that we can make money on this mm-hmm. thing. And so we, February of 2012, we launched our Kickstarter and our agreement was if this, this is successful, you know, if we can raise $30,000 in, in 60 days, then we're on to something. 
and we'll move to Columbus and open this brewery. And so it was on my birthday, March 31st in 2012. Uh, our project was successful. I think we were the highest funded brewery at the time. We might've raised like 31 or 32,000. Wow. And, uh, and so that's, that's when the journey officially started. Yeah. Then you had to do then it. We right? had to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is always interesting because, you know, there's, we went through basically every single challenge that you could think of starting a new business after that. And even during that time, even though there's no like actual legal obligation, because your only obligation with Kickstarter, at least when we did it, was that you fulfilled the rewards because at least what we did and like even shortly after we were successful, like I don't know why anyone would kickstart a business. Like it's di like, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier if you're like pre-selling a product or like sure. a book or like right. funding a movie, yeah. like you get something tangible, but we were having that to fund our idea. And then you got a pint or you got mm -hmm. a t-shirt and our top reward is, uh, you got your name on the can, uh, when we <laughs> open. So, <laughs> so it's kickstarted by Chris and Denise Benner, my parents, okay. uh, Allison, Michael keys, who are Walt's parents and uh -huh. Phil Pakelny, who's a guy that used to work at the dispatch that okay. thought it would be cool to have his name on our cans. And uh -huh. Didn't know who the hell he was. And uh, uh, that's so, cool. so, so tell me about, you know, then, then you pick Franklinton, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, the thought process and what you saw here that had you open up in this neighborhood. So we actually, Franklinton was, ended up, technically was our second choice. So mm -hmm. we, uh, talking about kind of the challenges. So we do the Kickstarter. I'm driving back and forth basically every, every other week from Chicago to, to look for real estate. I had a friend that helped us out, but we knew we wanted to be a production brewery. So we knew we needed space. And when it comes to beer, uh, the tanks don't get wider necessarily. They get taller. So you need ceiling height. And so the other interesting thing about Columbus that not a lot of people realize is versus other cities. It's a lot easier to get the, as you probably have gone through to get, or you definitely have gone through to get zoning variances changed. You don't really like Chicago, the amount of palms you have to grease to change something from uh, mm -hmm. retail to light industrial. And the nice thing was breweries were a lot of times set out in industrial parks because they were viewed as light industrial and weren't necessarily looked unless you were just a pure restaurant brewery kind of like Barley's. So we felt we had an opportunity that we could argue the economic benefit, or we could argue that we could fit in the neighborhood, still be manufacturing and production. We saw that happening. Like if you look at Great Lakes in Cleveland, they're in Ohio city, they're near Westside market. They're, they're right in a neighborhood and the neighborhood maybe was neglected for a while, but the neighborhood grew up around the brewery. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in Chicago, the half acre, the brewery I mentioned, they, you know, they were in the middle of a neighborhood. You walk by the, the, um, big garage door is open up. And so it's kind of how manufacturing a lot of times was, uh, historically it was still, maybe they were, it was still in downtown in the city core, not out in these nameless, faceless kind of business parks, uh, or industrial parks. So we had that idea. And so we looked at basically any building. We looked where North high, uh, in short North where they ended up, we were basically two weeks too late. They had a letter intent on that. Mm -hmm. And again, we were, didn't necessarily have, you know, it was anywhere between three and 6,000 square feet. We were arena liquors in the arena district. That was like an empty building. Yep. And so we looked at that building, we got very close and it was owned by the, the Greek Orthodox church. And they were kind of mm -hmm. nervous about putting a alcohol brand like a brewery. And then they opened a liquor store. Put it in there, a liquor store. Yeah. Interesting. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I mean, basically, and, and so I would, I'm like, just show me every building I'll mm -hmm. come in down and look at it because I'm not really sure what 
we, we didn't have the full concept of what it would be. And what really changed in Ohio in 2012, they changed a law that allowed breweries to have tap rooms. So before that, it was you could do samples, but it wasn't really that tap room that faced you either a brew pub or you're a manufacturing brewery that you could like serve samples. So that that really changed. And that's why you see this big boom. So knowing that we wanted to be in the urban core, we wanted to be in a neighborhood. So we, you know, basically looked at every single building, looked down in Franklinton, and it was over on Rich Street where the sign company is now, and looked at that building, it just didn't really didn't fit. It was too, it's too small. And so while this is happening, four string opened up, seven sun opened up, North High opened up and they exploded Mm -hmm. and they ran out of space. Mm -hmm. So like seven sun in in Columbus, they opened up in an old tire shop on an Italian village. And they're like, this will be enough space forever. And that I remember reading the articles and they were within two years, they were, Mm -hmm. they were full. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we're like, we need to look bigger. We need to find 10,000 square feet. And what, you know, growing up in Cleveland, Walt Cincinnati, like Ryan Geist in Cincinnati, beautiful old warehouse from Christian Moorline, the bottling plant. So all these old buildings and neighborhoods that you could see potential that that you could put this brewery in. But Columbus is too young of a city. And so, you know, we had this idea for Columbus, but it didn't have that building stock like Cleveland does or Cincinnati or Chicago does. So that really limited us. And then we found this building in uh, right next to Grandview Yard. That was a 20,000 square foot, beautiful barrel truss, uh, long warehouse. It would be if First Street would have came off of Northwest. It was called Burrell. We met, if you're familiar with um, Blockfort. Mm-hmm. Adam uh, had the- I remember, yeah. Taco Cat. Taco Cat, yeah. Yep. That was yep. in the office of where the brewery was going to go. Mm-hmm. So we had we finally found our spot. So it took us a year and a half because- we really wanted this vision of being within a neighborhood. So, you know, Grandview being close to downtown wasn't necessarily urban core, but we're still amongst uh, the neighborhood. And so we had our plan, you know, finally found it. I left my job, moved to Columbus. And so, you know, we're, we got our Kickstarter didn't get, it got us half the money goes to rewards instead <laughs> of <laughs> shipping them out. So, and then maybe it was a third awards, a third because you're 1099 from Amazon. So then that goes to taxes, self, self-employment taxes that mm-hmm. no one tells you about. Mm-hmm. And then, so we had, I don't know, $10,000 and that paid for like the legal startup and our architect. And mm-hmm. so we had our plans drawn up. I had already ordered the, you know, we had our loan from SBA loan, ordered the equipment. We were going in front of Grandview city council on a Wednesday. And then Monday we get a certified letter from our, landlord saying that, or no, we first get a letter, a letter from Grandview saying that we're off the agenda on Wednesday. And we're like, why are we off the agenda? Mm-hmm. We're presenting our plans. And then later that day, we got a certified letter saying that your lease has, has been canceled. Mm. And uh, there was a clause that said if there was something that was prohibitively costly that they were required to do by law, that they could cancel the lease. So like ADA requirements or fire, you know, that sort of thing. But we actually never went in front of anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of just used that and we're like, you're the biggest landlord in the city mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have no money. So yeah. put our tails between our legs and said, you know, let's find another building. And mine, again, we had, we had looked at buildings for a year and a half and basically looked at every single building that could fit this criteria in Columbus. So that was a pretty dark time. Yeah. I think we didn't think the brewery was going to happen, but it goes back. Like we didn't know anything to the Kickstarters, but that was always in the back of my head. It was, you know, we knew maybe a third of the people. It's like these people believed in our story. So like, we need to keep pushing on and do this. And that's, you know, again, I would, I would literally just drive around and be like, that's a cool building. 
I wonder, I'd go on the auditor's website and be like, I wonder if I know anyone that knows that person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I used to do that, too. That's, I mean, when you're first getting started, I mean, that's probably the best way to find real estate. And it's interesting, too, you know, I mean, you know, you, you kind of are highlighting the, you know, entrepreneurial struggle. I think the Kickstarter thing is interesting. Not not so much Kickstarter itself, but like there's some some sort of, you know, obligation, responsibility, something that has you go... I think like in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they say it's like you should, um, uh, you know, spend money so that you're motivated to make more, right? Like you, you, you have to have some sort of uh, multiple motivations, right? Because now you, you, you've really found something you're passionate about, something you really want to do. And now you've got some people that have invested in you. And yet, you know, it's hard. I mean, the challenges come, right? I mean, you're just talking about finding a building. I'm sure there have been many, many, many and continue. I mean, you know, into COVID, I mean, you name it, right? I guess I'm I'm kind of curious just to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, as an entrepreneur and, and, and doing something that you're passionate about. Talk about just like, you know, you've landed here, you, you're successful, you've gotten over a number of humps, right? You, you probably grow. And so there's always some fear and risk out there. But you know, just kind of like, I don't know, maybe sum it up a little bit, that that journey for you, what what it, what it's like. I don't, I don't think people really always understand, you know, kind of the fullness of the journey. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And I think even how internally, how we've looked at it. So I asked Walt, I'm like, hey, do you want to do this? Like mm-hmm. my my friend Colin, he's in Cleveland now, mm-hmm. didn't want to follow to Columbus and start. He, he had a baby and they had a different thing. And mm-hmm. Lauren and I were like, we don't have kids. So let's, let's try this. Yeah. Like if we lose out, we lose out. But I think there are a couple of things and I've had to remind employees about this, that, um, you know, for us, when we started, we didn't. So Lauren, and I had a very small wedding and we were very fortunate that our families were there to support us. So her dad did kind of an even thing with, with, with her that I spent this much on your daughter's wedding. So <laughs> If you have a small wedding, I don't want to do, or I'm on a, on your sister's wedding. Mm-hmm, like I don't, mm-hmm. you can have this money for a house or whatever, and mm-hmm. that helped us get going on the brewery. So yeah, yeah, you know that us, you know, but we we're fully invested. That yeah, you know, we didn't know, own a house when we started. Like that was that was something that we kind of had to be successful. You know, we again were in a fortunate position that we had families that we knew if it failed, like we weren't going to be out on the street. And I think that is that's kind of that side that not all entrepreneurs have that, I guess, privilege that you could do that. But I also, even if, even if it wasn't that, I always knew that experience I had, if I had to go back to corporate America, if someone didn't hear me like talk about what I learned or or went through, that's a great story. That's mm-hmm. something that if other entrepreneurs or folks, you know, when I'm looking at different types of roles, like that's something, you know, we're a very entrepreneurial company. We're small. So that's a strength that I see in someone that are you going to be someone that is going to wait for someone to tell you what to do, or are you just going to go and do it? Yeah. So I think that's part of the spirit behind it. And I'm not, I'm, I might've gone a different direction of the question no, that's you're okay. asking, yeah. but yeah, but I do think that willingness to say, you know, it, it, people have different motivating factors too. And I think always in the back of my head, I tell that story about my grandfather a lot because if what he did coming from, really from nothing and build himself into what he did. I, that That's always been a driver for me that I had been in a privileged position. So if I don't take advantage of that, then 
I wasted, I wasted the opportunity, Mm -hmm. I I think is kind of how it's always been burning in the back of my head. And so that's, that's really what's driven me and why I knew eventually this would come to something that I would. It's yeah. So you you talked a little bit about the spirit and, and, you know, when I think about land grant and, you know, I think Columbus is a, is a really amazing place to build community, to get support, to get buy-in. I mean, I know you have big partnerships with Ohio State, right? And, and, and others. I see, you know, over the years you've done stuff with Jenny and, right? I mean, people want to collaborate, but but they want to collaborate not just because they're Midwestern or they're from Columbus or that's the spirit of Columbus, because there's like a like-minded, energetic thing there that people connect to. And what's fascinating, and I, I've we're like in the business of building communities, right? But whether it be the podcast or anything that we do, events, you know, what you try to do is really something more than what your core business is, right? We're not just trying to, you know, build apartments for people to sleep in and places for people to work. We're actually trying to give them something that's connecting and enhancing their their life and the neighborhood and the city, right? And and I think it's funny that. Oftentimes, things like beer are not, people don't connect the dots as to just how important it is in building a community and building a community within a community. And frankly, to me, that's like the number one thing you can do from an economic development standpoint, right? If people look at Columbus as a place that is vibrant and connecting and easy and fun and you know, people are cool and nice and kind. I mean, who doesn't want to start your business here? Who doesn't want to move here? Right. And I think that things like land grant, you know, and there, and especially when you like stack them up, right. So you have land grant, you've got Jenny's and homage, I'm just naming retailers and whatever that I, I think do this, you add it all up and it's like, it makes a huge difference. And so that's kind of how I look at your business, you know, from a distance. And I'm just curious, like, how much of that was intentional? Is that just who you guys are? You know, talk a little bit about how you have something way more than just, you know, a beer company. I think, you know, going even back to the your first statement, you hit the nail on the head. Like, looking back, could we have done this in Chicago? Maybe. But I am probably one of the biggest evangelists just for the Columbus business scene. I tell mm-hmm. you it's it, the collaborations, as you mentioned, you know, we've worked with, we've worked with homage, we've worked mm-hmm. with Jenny's, you mm-hmm. know, that unrelated businesses, but we're rooting for each other. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, and, and it's a, it's a not necessarily a closed off. So like Cincinnati is Cincinnati mm-hmm. USA mm-hmm. The, and, mm-hmm. and Cleveland's a little more maybe welcoming, but like, if you're not from Cleveland, it's a little harder to break in, but Columbus yeah. is such a, not being from Columbus, but going here for being here for a little bit and being welcomed into the environment and, you know, probably because of the way that we have approached the business. But there are times that I'm, especially early on, get invited to things, but like looking around the room being, why am I here? (laughs) (laughs) And, and I think that's, it's that opportunity to collaborate and root for each other to be successful, to make Columbus better. Mm -hmm. I think we've looked at that. Partnerships are something that are so core to how we built our business. I think our biggest example is how we, our our first official partner was with the Columbus crew. And Mm -hmm. this is back in 2015. And we did things that with them, we were named corporate partner of the year and their partners with Pepsi and Mm -hmm. uh, all Papa John's, all this, their first year, because 
we thought outside of the box. And I think even the first time we, we sat down with, with, with you guys, mm-hmm. you know, we, we look at it as a partnership should just never be about like one group is getting more than the other, you know, one group is benefiting. So like we're with the crew. It's not just about, Hey, they're going to sell our beer in the stadium. It's how can we, how can we elevate the crew? How can like, because we think the crew are an integral piece to what makes Columbus great. Mm-hmm. And so what can we do to help elevate what's around us? So being in Franklinton, that's also, we, you know, not being from Columbus, not being from the West side, an area that was neglected throughout its history and had this burgeoning art scene that was happening. And then, and then we showed up. So we had 400 was already running. Idea Foundry was under construction when we, when we found the building. And so rehab had just, it had converted from the three deuces lounge, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and Strongwater had just opened up. And Mm so we're these outsiders and our first experience is within two weeks, this front of our building that we, you know, ourselves, Blake was out there, like everyone Mm -hmm. who helped get the brewery going, we are out there painting our logo on the side, whitewashed. It was a, mm-hmm. like a mill pouch to tobacco. That was Walt's mm-hmm. idea that, mm-hmm. you know, since we had this barnwood and then we come down after it was Ohio state had just beat Wisconsin 59, nothing. I, it's very, <laughs> very vividly. And then Walt texts me. Cause at the time when we opened, mm-hmm. both of us would open the brewery. One of us would do it. We, and then the other person would close and this mm-hmm. happened until he had a baby mm-hmm. the first nine months. And so he goes, like shit, someone threw paint all over the sign. And and we're like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, mm-hmm. this is, mm-hmm. this is the last thing we want. Mm-hmm. We're like, like, are they trying to like say you don't belong here? And uh-huh. so we're sitting there watching a crappy Browns game and uh-huh. uh, we're like, well, what should we do? And uh, Adam Burlett was actually watching the Browns game with uh-huh. us. And we're like, Adam, can you take a look? He's like, whatever paint that's on there, like it's the same paint that you're signing. Like you're going to strip everything off. And uh-huh. so, uh-huh. so we're like sitting there and Walt's like, we're like, well, what can we do? And so we may well, start pulling it into Photoshop and we're like, let's make a t-shirt uh-huh. <laughs> out of it. Yeah. And I get, and we're like, Hey, and you know, <laughs> we, 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 we don't know how to order t-shirt sizes. So let's do a pre-order, but this isn't for us. Like mm-hmm. let's give back to the neighborhood. Let's mm-hmm. decide. And so that actually started one of our most long running community partnerships with, with Gladden. And we're mm-hmm. like, you know, who, who should we work with? And so the Harmony Project had done some stuff down in Franklinton, some cleanup. So uh, we're like, all right, we're going to give 100%. We'll split proceeds, Harmony Project and Gladden, and uh, let's sell these shirts. Mm. Let's let's say, hey, like, we know what, whoever did this, like, could have been just neighborhood kids, but, like, yeah. we're going to embrace it. And uh, we did that. I think we, we ended up raising $6,000 and cut a check, again, 100% of the proceeds. And so mm-hmm. that's really, that's what started the journey. And we realized, yeah. like, it got a great, a lot of great press and people like, oh, like, you know, you guys, you know, you probably threw that paint and we're like, yeah. No, yeah, like yeah. this is, I mean, and, and perfect, but yeah. we realized that's kind of what said, you know, we wanted to be part of this community and help build it up. And, yeah. you know, everyone, when we started here and why we loved the idea of Franklinton, it's you know, right next to downtown yeah. and for us being a manufacturer, the logistics of like 315 being yeah. there, we can get around, Yeah, but seeing what we could do to have an impact on, on the neighborhood, realize that we're on the right path. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it has a real ripple effect. I come over here then back, you know, looking at, you know, Independence Day and some of the things that were going on here and there wasn't much, but you were here. And to me, when I see like a couple few things that are like right on, that's all you need to know. 
you know, so, and I, and I was talking to Adam too about, you know, gravity and what he was doing here with the Wasserstrom building. And I, I was seeing the, the seeds that had been planted and, you know, that's then what happens, you know, a whole thing, you know, gets birthed out of somebody like you and the others that were down here, you know, Jim and, and Lance and whoever else. Right. And uh, yeah, it really can, you know, spread pretty uh, fast. So, Hey, as we start to wrap up, I'm curious to just have you talk a little bit about, you know, where you're at now and where you're going, you know, kind of what, what, what does land grant look like today and in the future um, in your, in your vision for uh, you know, what you want to do with the business now? That's a great question. And I think for us, it's interesting. A lot, a lot of our friends that have breweries have been opening up new locations and people have asked us like, Hey, when are you going to, when, when's the next land grant opening up? And uh, it was actually Walt's wife mentioned, she was like, you already opened another one. You opened the beer garden. And so mm-hmm. for us coming, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the, the, the business completely changed that having that beer garden space. And then we realized very quickly we ran out of space. So when, when, uh, I don't even remember who it might've been. I don't know if it was Alex who first approached us, but I think it was Alex. Yeah. Yeah, Because we were talking about, you know, in fact, we had been approached by somebody else and I said, uh, well, we ought to talk to them first. (laughs) So, you know, I think Alex came over and said, I'll talk to him. And then they were, yeah, it was like, Hey, would you guys be interested? And we're like, yes, but Uh what else do we need to do? And so for us, because we, we saw what we were able to do and kind of build this community and, you know, the pop in our head winner, it popped in our head, like, we're out of space for our, the party that we do with Jenny. So yeah. like this, this is going to be a way to, again, continue to. So I think internally what people are most excited about is what was the manifest building mm-hmm. uh, referred to, which is the uh, garage, which uh, Andrew Lumberg who did the tree yeah. and, and gravity experience bark, his old studio will be that that's going to be called the land grant extension. So mm-hmm. as there's land grant colleges, the universities, most of them have extension offices. So they're, like Worcester is one of the ag extensions at Ohio State that they study other things. So mm-hmm. this is an extension of the brand, but it's going to be the home of our innovation program. Mm-hmm. So that it'll be another tap room, but we're going to be showcasing beers that aren't necessarily going to be over at the Langrant, main Langrant tap room mm-hmm. and allows, uh, but he's been there with us for about 14 months, Victor Poole. He was head of brewing operations at Columbus Brewing Company. And for us, a lot of people know Land Grant. Again, as you kind of mentioned, it's the experience. It's the, you know, everything we do. And we also have beer. Mm-hmm. And so, and there's a lot of people that really love our beer. And then within the probably beer nerd community, we're like, oh, yeah, Land Grant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but what we've done with the liquid and, and the new, the, the quality has just gone through the roof compared to what, you know, if you had our beer five years ago and, and then this new innovation program that we have, we're super, we're excited to showcase that. And mm. so that's going to be kind of that, that jewel. And and so probably if you have to ask, especially on the production side, they're like, yeah, all that stuff's nice. And mm-hmm. that allows us to buy tanks and stuff, but mm. that we're excited about that. So mm. that's kind of our first, basically outside of like doing outdoor space, our first new tap room in mm-hmm. 10 years. And so this is the 10, yeah, we'll be open 10 years this fall. And we have a couple other irons in the fire mm. that, there's a couple opportunities outside of Columbus that I never get too ahead of myself because the amount of times that we've basically been right before signing a lease or already had a lease signed and that falls through. So, but I think what really we, we uncovered with kind of the winter is people don't necessarily just want to go anywhere now and just have a beer. Mm -hmm. They want to have that experience. And so 
we want to be able to provide that. So now versus when we were looking, we kind of have that vision of what that next space would be and keeping the same spirit that we've done here in Franklinton. And the last thing that we want to do is expand just to expand. And mm-hmm. we, it's, it's gotta be intentional. It's gotta make the most, it's gotta make sense. And it's gotta, um, bring kind of this, a similar energy. I've told people like, I'm not going to be knocking down walls and painting and doing all that. Like we did uh, yeah. 10 years ago. Right. So it will probably have a different feel, but yeah. that's just with any business as you grow. And yeah. So, yeah. It, it, and it might, because you're right. That that's, you know, what happens when you grow, but you know, obviously there's an authenticity to what you do and you're protecting that, you know, you're not going to just expand to expand. You're not going to just, you know, take what you've done and, you know, scale it massively because that's what you're focused on. You're going to continue to grow, but you're going to do it, you know, authentically. And, and then that's what makes your brand so great. So, Hey, thanks for taking the time. It's good to talk to you and, and hear the story and get to know you more. And, um, and share that with the audience. But uh, more importantly, thanks for what you've done for the neighborhood and for the city. And yeah, I'm glad to see you guys are uh, having as much success as you are. Well, I appreciate it. This has been great. Great, yeah. great chatting with you. And, and likewise, it's, it's, oh. it's always, it was always fun watching, uh, watching everything sprout out on Broad Street. And yeah. now, now, to, now to be partnering with you guys, it's been great. Yeah, cool. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 